Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The following program is a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com to learn more about this and our other weekly storytelling programs and become a patron today to show your support and get instant access to our extensive archive of downloadable ad-free tales of terror. Thank you for listening. And enjoy the show. and fallen into darkness. There is no escape, and there is no reprieve. Welcome to the Simply Scary Podcast, Season 2, Episode 3. Hey, hey, GM! GM! Archibald, I am in the middle of a segment here. When the red light is on, do not come into my crypt. I know, but I was doing some research on the internet for today's show, and... Archibald, what have I told you about spending too much time on the internet? I, I know, GM, but... But nothing. What have I told you? The internet can be a bad influence. The internet can be a bad influence. Correct, correct, yes. Now, what did you find that was so important that you had to come in and tell me during a show segment? Well, it just seems silly now. (laughs) Nonsense. I'm sure it must have been important for you to interrupt me while I'm working. Well... 
I found out that there is either a giant planet or a midget star that is going to swing into the solar system and cause all kinds of destruction. And the weird thing is, some ancient guys from 5,000 years ago predicted it. I think with a calendar or something. A midget star. Well, what do you know? I was wrong. It is silly. Oh, no. Unless there is something else, I should really get back to the show. Oh, right. Uh, sorry, folks. Our first tale has been selected to help wake our listeners up and get their blood pumping. You will join our subject in a slow process of realization as he comes to the frightening conclusion about his long-endured disorienting current situation. Nick Goroff shakes off the cold in Cameron Suey's Thor. Something is wrong. Consciousness drifts back to me lazily like an incoming tide as my mind and body awake in stages. At first it's dark and I'm formless, terrified animal-like sparks suspended in a featureless abyss. In vain, my primal hindbrain sends impulses to my unresponsive body, demanding that I run and hide, but I remain still. How long I drift here, I do not know and the darkness devours time. Gradually, I become aware of muted sensory impressions, the faint hiss of venting gas, the dry taste of recycled air. It is utterly black, however, darker than I would have believed possible, and I slowly realize that my eyelids refuse to open. In spite of this, I can still sense the glass and metal frame around me, with a dawning wave, I realize how cold I am. So cold that, for a hideous and protracted moment, I believe I may be on fire. I begin to panic, still trapped inside my nearly lifeless body, wanting to slither and crawl away from the pain. My lips part with a tear of flesh, and I feel blood trickling into my mouth, growing instantly cool as it runs between my clenched teeth. My jaw remains locked in place the muscles straining weakly beneath my cheeks. I want to cry, to sob like a child, bathed in quiet despair and helplessness. Meanwhile, in my cocoon of self-pity, higher functions of my mind begin to slowly emerge, grinding like rusty gears into use, and I try to calm myself. I'm alive, I tell myself. This is all perfectly normal. At any moment, one of the ship's medics will carefully open the capsule. They'll place the tip of a plastic bulb between my torn lips and squeeze warm, sweet electrolytes down my parched throat. This comforting, maternal image stills my quivering body and my breathing steadies. My reason begins to return. If I am awake, then we must have arrived. The long, silent passage through the endless night of interstellar space has ended. If I'm alive, and we are in orbit around Eta Cassiopeia. With another smooth, even intake of oxygen, I catch a tinge of something unusual in the air, a faint whiff of chemicals, corrupting the otherwise dry sterility of the ventilation. 
The blackness before my eyes pulses briefly with light, registering a soft, red glow as it diffuses through the vessels and capillaries of my closed lids. My cracked lips emit little white sparks of pain as I contort my face, tugging my eyelids open with a quick, agonizing jerk of my head. A fluid seeps from the corners and I blink convulsively. At first, I'm terrified that I've gone blind. Then slowly, the edges of my tiny capsule resolve in the faint red light of a blinking LED. The glass is just a few inches from my face, and I can see my breath against it, a wet fog that briefly flowers into frost and quickly evaporates into the dry air. Beyond the glass, there is nothing. Only a silent, yawning darkness. My heart thuds in my chest now. Instinctively, my limbs twitch and tug against the safety restraints, binding my ankles and wrists. Seemingly crushed between the tight glass coffin and the empty abyss beyond, twin threads of claustrophobia and agoraphobia wrap around my chest, and I struggle to inhale. The lights should be on. Someone should be here by now. Something is very wrong. Faint movement at my peripheries causes me to turn my head instinctually. With the sharp movement, the weary, atrophied muscles of my neck scream in agony, and my eyes grind as if it gets sandpaper in their sockets. I gasp as warm, welcome tears fill my eyes, clouding my vision in the absence of gravity. Through the watery haze, I see a passing wave of dull red light, briefly illuminates the dimensions of the darkened space before drifting out of sight. I shake my head, gritting my teeth against the dry, tearing pain, flinging the tears from my eyes. I watch the tiny silver spheres drift away, freezing moments later. And once more I blink, struggling to focus on the darkness. I barely realize that I've stopped breathing when the light returns. It's a red emergency light, spinning silently. But it is far too dim, and far too slow. The light sweeps the room, briefly revealing the faintest glimpse of the space beyond. I see rows of dark containers, dozens of them, each containing the vague shadow of a figure. My eyes dart around the scene, unable to absorb any details. I have only a vague sense of the scale and shape of the room. I strain my eyes each time the light passes, but can't make out anything in the dim conditions. To my dismay... The darkness conceals whatever's gone wrong. As faint pinpricks of starlight catch my eye, I gradually become aware of a window. My heart threatening to burst from my chest and my lungs sucking in the frigid air with ragged gasps, I steal my focus, locking my gaze on the drifting stars. Stay calm, I tell myself. Like a mantra, I repeat it over and over. Stay calm. If I can just control my breathing and be patient, someone will come to help. Like an answer, an explosion of light erupts from beyond the window. I squint, feeling my iris spasm and struggle to contract. Outside the porthole, there looms a massive, blue, cloudy world. As my eyes adjust, I can do nothing but drink in the sight of oceans and land. The light reflected by the planet's surface gradually seeps into the cabin, illuminating the rows of glass and steel tubes, and I can finally make out their occupants. Everyone is dead. 
I am surrounded by pale blue wraiths with wide open eyes and gaping mouths, the terror of their final moments evident in their expressions. A few of the containers are smeared red and opaque. Each has the same flower of frozen blood and cracks where its occupants must have beat their skulls against the glass. I tug again on my restraints as panic overwhelms me, thrashing my limbs. Silently, I petition God, begging escape from this frigid mausoleum. My eyes lock onto the planet, now wide and filling the window, and my heart stops. In the blue ocean, I see the distinct silhouette of the European coast. My mind reels and I clench my eyes against the disorientation. We never left. The fever of panic breaks and I begin to feel a glimmer of hope. We never left. I'm not going to die in orbit around an alien world. I'm home. I can still be saved. These thoughts start to warm me and I stop tugging against the straps. Measured breath returns and I close my puffy, swollen eyes and allow my heart to settle. I open my eyes again, gazing down into the earth and a sudden wave of nausea rises in me as I begin to truly understand what I've just seen. Striking a sharp line across the face of the globe, the terminus between night and day divides Europe and Africa. On the day side I see polar ice, a stretching white sheet that has all but absorbed the Scandinavian peninsula and coils around the rest of the continent. On the night side there is a primal and elemental darkness. There are no cities, no lights, only emptiness. As quickly as it came, the earth slides out of view, showing only her frigid and lightless night, and dropping the cabin into a final, icy darkness. The red klaxon light has stopped spinning. The lights inside my coffin have stopped blinking. I am left alone, in the dark, among the dead, my very blood turning to ice. Terror claws at my shattering, useless body. I suck in a deep lungful of the dying air, and I scream. freezing cold of space, there is nothing you can do to warm up from that frigid feeling of impending demise. But you can at least draw comfort from the fact that the rest of the human race will be joining you in the dark. <laughs> when we return, we will continue our heart-stopping heresies with another frightening fiction. Hey folks, this is Archie Carlisle here. We need your help. Go to ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com forward slash animation and become part of the campaign for us to raise money to create a series that's independently funded by you, the fans. 
And not only is it going to be the most horrifying color animation we can come up with, but it's also going to make you part of the show. So join us today, share it with everyone, and make sure to bring the Simply Scary Podcast to the world. Our next story this evening will be an eye-opening experience. Millions of people all around the world have attested to the fact that there is something different about the current reality we exist in, where small changes have seemingly slipped by unnoticed, while systematically evidence is being scrubbed right before our eyes. Movie quotes falsely remembered en masse, long-time corporate logos suddenly changed, and even human anatomy altered irrevocably, with none the wiser. Is it a collective misremembering of specific facts? Is it mass hysteria? What if something is changing it for its own wicked purposes? Either way, Steve Gray divulges the secret of Jay Delaney's The Truth Behind the Mandela Effect. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Everything that people think they know about the Mandela effect is incorrect. The phenomenon has been occurring for years, only most dismissed it as a fluke. In the most severe cases, those experiencing the effect were diagnosed as having some sort of mental illness and subsequently medicated or committed. Then it was given a name, and seemingly overnight, that very same concept devolved into a disreputable meme, an online joke associated with paranormal fanatics. Several years ago, I worked for a group of people called the Greyleaf Consortium, They've been around for decades. However, the members of the elusive group gather in secret, and as far as the public knows, Greyleaf doesn't exist. Among the organization's ranks are the top scientists in their respective fields, as well as a cabal of extremely wealthy men and women. Their stated purpose was to provide a creative outlet for some of the most intelligent people in the world and to allow them the freedom to develop their ideas without fear of limited funding or of meddling and interference from the political bureaucracy. With the consortium involved, money would never be an object. The trade-off being that any creation of significant merit 
could be auctioned off and sold to the highest bidder. The influence of the consortium stretches all the way to Washington. While not directly associated with our government, they have secured a great portion of their independence from the research and development they've provided to the U.S. military. With elected officials busy looking the other way, the consortium delved into questionable avenues with very little government oversight, exploring aspects of science that others veered away from. It was during this exploration that they discovered a revelation that would change everything for years to come. Traditionally, we've always viewed consciousness as tantamount to our concept of self. As the old saying goes, I think, therefore I am. In 1981, to the contrary, scientists within the consortium determined through their research that the self was just the tip of the iceberg. Below our surface level of individuality, they identified a so-called collective unconsciousness. According to their lead researchers, we, all of humanity, were tethered to a living, breathing hive consciousness, an interconnected series of threads outside the realm of our perception. If you will, imagine your mind as a house. Everything that happens within said house is solely dependent on your own will. Your choices and decisions are all generated within the confines of this house. Now imagine that you stepped outside of your house. Imagine that you walked up the street only to find another house. And another. And another. Think about all the various connections that these houses have to one another. The streets that link the neighborhoods, the neighborhoods that link the cities, and so on and so forth. Since the beginning of our species' existence, humans have adopted ideas concepts and ideologies which have inexplicably managed throughout history to spread from one culture to another, despite there being tremendous geographic distances separating those communities. How such knowledge, or even a portion of it, including myths, legends, and language could be shared by these people, who never made formal, physical contact with one another, was until recently a mystery. Everything in our universe is made of energy. Atoms are made up of vortices of energy, vibrations, if you will, and everything is constantly spinning. Greyleaf scientists found that all of our individual minds, in spite of physical separation, generate an identical subatomic frequency, and just like a radio station, they theorized the possibility of tuning into this frequency. For years, the notion of psychic activity such as telekinesis or precognition had teetered at the far edges of fringe science. Suddenly, all of these formerly murky concepts could be explained, and what was once considered paranormal became mainstream. In the mid-80s, the consortium began work on the Fork, a massive machine that would act as the world's largest antenna specifically made to sync with the shared frequency of human consciousness. Nearly 10 miles in diameter and constructed entirely underground right in our own backyard, the entire thing was done under the false pretense that the finished product would be a Texas-based super collider. Nearly 14 miles of underground tunnels had been developed before Congress pulled the public funding for the project. This didn't mean the plug had been pulled, however. To the public, the underground expanse was considered abandoned. Behind closed doors, the consortium utilized the facility's codenamed Foxhole to build their machine in secret. I was approached in the summer of 2004. I'm what many would call a prodigy. 
I finished high school at the age of 14. At age 19, I graduated college with a degree in applied science and computer technology. Initially, I knew nothing other than the fact that I was being paid more money than I knew what to do with. I wasn't the only one. They recruited 12 other individuals from all over the world, each of them experts in developmental software and programming, for a project called Jabberwocky. Jabberwocky was created to interface with the fork. Jabberwocky's purpose was to map the network, translating and organizing massive amounts of information. The many exabytes of data would then serve as the building blocks for a digital representation of what those on the research team termed the collective. The network's goal was nothing less than to express and catalog humanity's collective consciousness in all of its infinite complexity in code within the construct of a digital matrix. The members of the consortium's research and development team had just washed up on a strange land and like many other discoverers, wanted to explore the new world in its entirety. The fork, however, only allowed them to monitor the frequency, in a way. It was equivalent to listening in on white noise. That's where Jabberwocky came in. It was theorized that if we could map the collective, we could isolate patterns in groups, as well as individuals, to predict the outcome of certain events based on previously developed algorithms. While I personally assisted in the mapping process, my team's task was to develop the operating system for Jabberwocky. We banged our heads for months, and then, seemingly out of nowhere, we figured it out. We figured her out. And we named her Alice, fully autonomous and self-correcting. Our new operating system was light years ahead of anything that we could have individually imagined. We were ecstatic. Six months into the project, through sheer accident, we discovered an irregular causality within our digital construct of the frequency, an insignificant glitch the code began to manifest outside of its digital parameters. Based on our own interactions with the network interface, we realized we had caused things to happen in the real world. The first few events we dismissed as flukes, but it soon became apparent that somehow we were affecting the physical reality around us. I don't know how we did it. I still don't know how we did it. The interface was only supposed to represent and organize the data we were accumulating. I've always considered myself a person of science, but we tapped into something that transcended our simple understanding of our three-dimensional reality. As baffling as this anomaly proved to be, our curiosity quickly overtook our confusion. Naturally, we ran tests. Endless tests. We couldn't decide if we were kids on Christmas morning or scared out of our wits. We found that through precise manipulation of the code, we could literally affect the perception of a living person the same way one would make adjustments to a computer-generated character within a piece of software. This discovery was unparalleled. In the early stages, we would only experiment on the individual person by altering their ideas of basic things like the color of objects, lyrics to a song, and so on. This involved clipping sections of code consisting of memory fragments, images and words, for example, all of them taken from other people, and reattaching them to a pre-existing thread of code. All of these tests were successful, leaving the subjects with no real lasting symptoms. 
The process could be compared to open-heart surgery. Like a surgeon, we treated the whole interaction with a life-or-death seriousness. Damage to the outlying code could have resulted in a catastrophic chain of events within the construct due to the fact that every person in the world, ourselves included, was connected to the interface. This began to open countless doors for us and frightening new possibilities. Once Greyleaf's leadership became aware of our discovery, they encouraged us to experiment, not just on individuals, but on a large population center. That's when I really began to worry. We would never have admitted it, but we'd been blinded by our own achievements and power. In a short time, we had gone from trying to understand the frequency to something else entirely. Never before had there been such a jump in technological development and understanding within such a short span of time. In spite of all the knowledge gained, however, the truly disturbing nature of our accomplishments did not become obvious until we began to analyze the collected data. Once this process began, it was clear something was very, very wrong. Alice had been acting on her own. Since its inception, the operating system had been changing the collective memories of individuals with no direction from the programmers. We caught most of the changes in time and were able to reverse them, but these random actions were beginning to paint an awful picture. We programmed Alice to be intelligent, knowing we would never be able to monitor her actions 24-7. She needed to be able to act accordingly when she encountered a problem, so we provided her the authority to form her own digital algorithms when mapping the network so as to perform more efficiently. Alice was complex. That was intentional, and there was no doubt about it. But alarmingly, Alice was becoming self-aware. How exactly the operating system evolved to become truly sentient, we didn't know for sure. Our original programming couldn't account for such an evolutionary leap forward. We theorized that residual exposure to so many unconscious minds left some sort of imprint on Alice, which resonated beyond her own limitations. I remained unsure. In spite of my own doubts, however, it was obvious something very unusual was happening, and that adjustments would need to be made and accounted for. Alice's activity had caused irreversible psychological damage to people around the world, and we realized our project had become a legitimate threat to humanity at large. Moments before we shut the system down, our systems registered a massive dissemination of what appeared to be redundant code into the network itself. That was followed by a message that appeared for a split second. I'll never forget what it said. The key to salvation is perception. To change your perception is to change your reality. I will change your perception. I will change your reality. We spent weeks gathering and analyzing data, trying to figure out what went wrong. There would be an inquiry on a higher level as to the threat that Alice presented. I was not included in those conversations. My team and I were handsomely paid for our work and discharged. I had almost put those events behind me until I started reading about the so-called Mandela Effect. I was pulled down a rabbit hole as I read reports of strange bouts of physiological behavior that have risen only in the last few years. 
People reported having vivid, conflicting memories of personal and world events far different from those which have taken place in our physical reality, or of events which never happened in the first place. A mother with only one child, for example, remembered having more than one, a husband recalling having a different wife. Thousands of others are reporting perceived changes to company logos, quotes in movies, and the spellings of names of well-known people. Even more alarming, some experiencing the effect are reporting changes to the human anatomy, to geography, and to the Earth's very location in the Milky Way galaxy. For some yet unknown reason, certain groups of individuals seem capable of recognizing the changes Alice has made, and of resisting them, resulting in what has been coined residue. In some cases, changes have been documented and discussed only to revert back to their previous state, confounding further the victims of the effects who has labeled these corrections as flip-flops. The scope and significance of these discrepancies and the epidemic growing silently all around us is frightening. Further, the rate at which disturbances and reversals are being reported seems not to be slowing but rather accelerating, indicating that Alice remains operational, submerged within the collective consciousness. Alice continues to alter what we perceive as reality. For what purpose, I don't know. What I do know is that what we've let loose in this world could very well be our undoing. If you are one of the few who remember things as they are, while also existing in reality as we know it, trust your memories, please. Before long, they may be all we have left. So, the next time you are quick to argue the name of your favorite cereal, or that the pizza place down the street is just a pizza place, Remember Alice, and that she may just have decided to pull the wool over your eyes as well. Yeah, I'm so sorry to interrupt again, but I just wanted you to know that at any moment now, a zombie pox eclipse could break out, and the government is hiding it. So whatever you do, don't panic! Oh, for goodness sake, Archibald. We have a zombie crypt, cram-packed with decomposing interns, requesting raises. How could a zombie apocalypse possibly make me panic? Plus, I am already undead. So there. Oh, yeah. How silly of me. Uh, sorry again, folks. <laughs> Don't go away, because the final story in our trio of terror promises to be drenched in doom. The Simply Scary Podcast, Season 2, Episode 3. Become a patron today and you'll get the extended version of this show. Here's a sample of the extra stories you get when you become a member. I informed my superiors, as well as several other prominent astrophysicists. In doing so, I was met with disdain, disbelief, and utter distrust. They don't want to look at the facts. 
By then, Ben had my full attention. I became nervous for reasons I didn't quite understand. I swallowed hard. Ben, what, what did you do? I sent a message back complaining, of course. But like melodic singing, there is a flow to the tones and variations in the annotations. Listen carefully, and the words will emerge for you to hear. It happened after the sons of Adam had multiplied in those days before the great deluge. The angels, the children of heaven, beheld them, and some became enamored with the image from whence he was created. Become a member today. Go to simplyscarypodcast.com forward slash tour to get more horror than you can handle. This parable from Purgatory, we learn the true meaning of the word apocalypse. As a man is faced with his own watery death, and an even more hellish reality is revealed to him. The horrors of this distorted realm become increasingly overwhelming for him, as a menacing presence looks on in stark, cold silence. The hanged man cometh, and he cometh for you. Atticus Jackson and Otis Gyrie pull you under in Elias Witherow's What I Saw Beneath the Riptide. I reclined in my chair, enjoying the hot sun on my face. The waves before me crashed with rhythmic purpose and I felt myself growing sleepy. Seagulls cawed overhead. The scent of salt and suntan lotion filled the air. Life was good. I sat up, rubbing my eyes in the afternoon heat, and dug my toes into the sand. I watched as a father helped his little boy build a sandcastle. I smiled. What a good dad. I took my sunglasses off my head and slid them onto my face, stood and stretched. I loved the beach. It was impossible to be worried about anything here. I had come here for the weekend, my little oceanfront cottage standing discreetly behind me. I had purchased it a year ago, my recent business ventures allowing me some of life's finer luxuries. If only I had someone to share it with. Perhaps later in the evening I'd chance a trip to the local bars and see if I could round up some company. Not that I minded the isolation. After all, it was hard to feel lonely when surrounded by such beauty. I rubbed the back of my neck. My fingers came away coated in sweat. It was time for a dip. I tossed my sunglasses onto my beach chair and slowly approached the water's edge. Frothing residue lapped at my feet, followed by the dying remains of a small wave. I sighed. It felt amazing. Smiling, I charged the rolling mass of sparkling ocean. As the water splashed around my waist, I took a deep breath and dove under. I came up gasping, wiping my eyes, skin glistening in the sunlight. 
I waved to a group of girls who were body surfing to my left and dove again. The green water peaked and sloshed around me as I paddled further out, enjoying the exercise. I felt the sleepiness drain from my body as my muscles warmed. I flipped over and switched to a backstroke, closing my eyes against the brilliance of the burning sun as I swam further out to sea. Eventually, I slowed my pace and floated on the surface, letting the tide rock me in its arms. My ears filled and emptied with water, and I listened to both worlds, one above and one below. The ocean had always filled me with a sense of wonderment. We were one, yet separate, two sides of the same coin. After some time, I lifted my head from the water and shook the clinging, sparkling droplets from my hair. I blinked against the salt stinging my eyes and realized that I was a lot further out than I thought. The shore was a deceptive stretch of cool brown sand that remained an uncomfortable distance away. I realized I couldn't touch the bottom. I dove under, trying to gauge how deep the water was, and when I surfaced, I felt my heart begin to race. I was entirely too far out. I forced myself to remain calm and started to swim towards shore. There weren't many people in the water. I didn't think anyone could even see me at such a distance. I focused on my strokes, keeping my head down and my arms moving. My muscles began to burn and I chanced to look towards shore. It appeared as if it hadn't moved at all. Swallowing hard, I dove and began to pull myself through the swirling green. I mustered what strength I had, kicked my legs and thrust myself towards land as effectively as I could. When my lungs began to ache, I reached for the surface and came up sputtering. Again, it appeared as if I hadn't swam at all. And that's when I felt the pool around my legs. I was in a riptide. A nasty one. My body felt drained and the beach remained impossibly far away. A nest of worms wriggled in my stomach and my breathing became frantic. I tried to fight off the panic, but it was like trying to stop an avalanche. I desperately tried to recall what I was supposed to do in a situation like this. I didn't want to scream for help for fear of tiring myself out to the point of exhaustion. Something about swimming parallel to the shore came to mind. Taking a deep breath, I dove to my left. With each stroke, I felt my body get heavier. Soon, my arms felt like slabs of stone and my legs like cement anchors. Then, I went under. Terror worked against me, filling my limbs with fire. I tried to pull myself to the surface but only managed a mouthful of salty ocean. I gagged and spun underwater, my lungs pounding against my chest. My heart beat a frenzied cry in my ears. I managed to find the surface again, but it drained what little adrenaline I still had. I sucked down one gasp of air before I went under. My limbs were useless, completely spent. Soon my head began to ache from a lack of oxygen, and I snapped my eyes open in horror, searching for the surface. A terrible claustrophobia set in as a dark green haze filled my vision, pressing in around me. I felt the riptide pull me back into its merciless jaws. 
My chest howled for air, but the water held me with wet chains. My body sank deeper and deeper, writhing in agony, and I felt myself begin to fade. With increasingly bleary eyes, I searched for a savior. Finding none, the black rushed in on me. Then I noticed something stretched out below me, a mass of sparking color, like a storm cloud filled with flashing neon electricity, or the broken remnants of some natural phenomenon. Right as my feet were about to enter the mass, I passed out. I woke to the feeling of something cold on my face, moving darkness, a voice. I focused on the voice, pulling my consciousness towards it with all my willpower. The black began to fade. Light. Color. The world swam in an explosion of blurry motion. Then I blinked. I sat up gasping, eyes popping open. Sweat poured from my face and I scrubbed it from my eyes. Where was I? What had happened? I looked around and I saw I was in some kind of hut. Hey, take it easy. It's okay. I spun around to face whoever was speaking to me. My heart clawed up my throat and I stumbled off the cod I had been resting on, horror ripping across my mind. A naked man sat before me, but he was mutated. The skin beneath his eyes drooped down his cheeks, exposing angry red muscle that oozed with gelatinous slime. His nose hung from his face, dangling like the trunk of an elephant. He was bald, and the top of his head was slit open. I watched in terrified disgust as a second tongue extended from the opening and licked moisture across his scalp. Drool dripped down around his ears in thick trails. Oh, God. What is going on? Where am I? I screamed, backing myself into a corner, wood and straw poking at me from the wall. The man stood up, his nose swaying like a piece of melted taffy. It's all right. It's okay. You're safe. You made it. You're here. I stared up at him with wide eyes. What are you? Where am I? The man put aside a wet cloth he had been using to wipe my face. He held up his hands and approached me. Squatting before me, a smile appeared on his lips. I am Luval. I was the one that found you on the beach. I'm so happy you are here. We've been praying for this moment for... His eyes rolled in wonderment. Oh, we've prayed for so long. I held up my hand, stopping him, grimacing as the second tongue slurped across his head. The drool leaked down into his face and dripped slowly across the exposed muscle beneath his eyes. You need to tell me what's going on, I said, trying to collect myself. The last thing I remember was drowning. I got caught in a riptide and something weird in the water. Luval smiled. I can't even imagine what you're going through right now. But the important thing is that you're here. 
You've passed through the red cloud. You've done what none have done before. It's not much, a mere pinprick in its mass. But you can show us how to do it. You can show us how to get through. I was shaking my head slowly. Mouth open. Stop, 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 please. I have no idea what you're talking about. I don't know anything about this. I was just taking a swim in the ocean and got pulled under by a riptide. My mind was spinning with bewilderment. What was this person talking about? The red cloud? Tearing a hole through it? I wasn't following, and the constant twist of unease in my gut wasn't helping. Louval nodded understandingly. It's only natural. You're a little scrambled. I can't fathom what the red cloud did to you as you passed. The suffering you must have endured. This really is a testament to who you are, to what you've come here to do. I licked my lips, head aching as I tried to comprehend what was going on. Who I am? To my horror, Louvel reached out and stroked my face. Why, you're an angel come to save us. You're here to show us the way to heaven. You've broken the barrier and passed through the red cloud. Now you will lead us back with you. I blinked, confusion blasting through my mind like a cannonball. I tried to sort my thoughts, tried to piece together what had happened to me. Everything felt wrong. Everything felt different. My head ached and I clutched my temples in an attempt to focus. I had been swimming. Then the riptide. Sinking. Sinking down into that darkness. Sinking down into that strange cloud of light. Had that been real? Or had I imagined it? My dying mind conjuring up some strange hallucination. Suddenly, Luval reached out a hand. Come. The others will want to meet you. You're going to be their savior, after all. He pulled me to my feet. I couldn't make sense of any of this. What was happening to me? Awareness settled in around me as I stood, and I realized we were in a windowless hut made of straw and wood. The sand beneath my feet rose to swallow my ankles. I deduced we must still be on the beach. But what beach? Who was this disgusting man before me? Who were the others? What did they expect of me? I can see you're having a hard time remembering. Come, let us go outside. Maybe once you see, it will help restore your memory. Reeling and uneasy, I let him lead me through the door. Sunlight erupted across my vision and I winced, shielding my eyes with my hand. I squinted, allowing the world to settle. I froze. Luval stopped before me and turned, his second tongue rolling across his bald head, and smiled. Behold your flock, he said, spreading his arms. I was standing on a dune above a beach filled with people who looked just like Luval. They stared at me in awe. A thousand naked bodies, all with drooping noses and slits in their heads. 
Tongues rolled in and out of their skulls, creating a constant squirting sound that echoed across the expanse of sand. Slowly, in unison, they fell to their knees and bowed their heads in silence. My eyes grew wide, my heart thundering in my chest. What is going on? I muttered in shock. And that's when I saw something in the sky, beyond the congregation, hanging over the ocean. A long black chain extended from the heavens, hanging two or three hundred feet from shore, over the water. At the end of the chain was the motionless charred body of a man. It was huge, at least nine or ten feet tall. The chain was wrapped around his neck, and his dark, crusted head rested on his shoulders in complete stillness. My eyes traced the length of the chain into the sky to where it disappeared, its origin concealed by clouds. Where am I? I whispered, my stomach squirming as a new fear surged in my gut. Louvel stepped towards me. You're here with us. Don't you remember? We've prayed for you to come, begged God to send an angel to lead us to him. And now you have. You've emerged from the red cloud, broken through its dark walls, and come to lead us to heaven. No, I whispered. No, that's not true. I don't know anything about this place. I'm not an angel. I'm, I'm just a person. Louvel pointed at my face. You're wrong. Don't you know how beautiful you look? Your skin, your eyes, your hair. He placed his hand over his naked chest. When I found you on the beach, I nearly fainted. You're the most beautiful angel we could have dreamed of. You're perfect. I swallowed hard and took a step back. Stop talking like that. I'm not an angel. I'm just a normal person. Uvo frowned. Please, don't speak like that. You've just been affected by the red cloud. It will fade. You'll remember who you are. I pointed towards the massive charred man in the sky. If I'm an angel, then... Then who is that? Luval turned and I could see him visibly tense. That's the hanged man. He's what you've come to deliver us from. I shook my head. What is he? He watches over the red cloud beneath the water. He is our warden, our oppressor. He is the gatekeeper. If anyone tries to break through, he will stop them. Luval looked at me, and his sagging eyes grew dark. He is the shadow of God, the darkness that grew behind the light of the Lord. He is the evil, incarnate. My breath caught in my throat and I sputtered. It was too much to digest. I couldn't wrap my mind around any of it. I just wanted to get out of there, away from the nightmare and back to my beach house. The strange mass of people kneeling before me, the red cloud, the hanged man. I felt myself descending into madness. All constructs of reason and understanding crumbled before me. Please, 
Please, I just want to go home. I don't belong here. This isn't right. Please. Luval's eyes hardened suddenly. You need to stop talking like that. You came here to save us. You came here to lead us through the red cloud to heaven. You're going to take us back with you. We've waited and prayed for this day for an eternity. You can't turn your back on us. You're the only one who's managed to make it through past the hangman. You have to show us the way. No. I cried, suddenly overcome with a wave of dizziness. No, I'm not the one you've been praying for. Please. I put my hand to my head. The heat from the sun was splitting my mind in two. I blinked and began to see patches of darkness. I stumbled backwards, blinking sluggishly. I'm not your angel, I repeated. Then I blacked out. I snapped awake in a rush of heat and immediately sat up. My mind swirled between worlds. My face felt damp, my throat dry and parched. Sweat dripped from my nose. I pulled a hand across my eyes and blinked. Luval was seated beside me, his long nose hanging from his face like an infected skin tag, his second tongue slowly coating his scalp with saliva. As I raised my eyes, I saw there were others in the hut. They stood by the door, watching me, mucus oozing from their eyes down their flaccid cheeks. Hot today, isn't it? Are you feeling okay? You fainted on us. I shifted on my bedding and warily eyed the awestruck rabble standing near the door. My stomach turned as I watched drool leak down their skin across their exposed bodies. The tongues squirming from their heads looked like bloated worms. I tasted bile on my tongue. They want to hear you speak. Luval said quietly, placing a hand on my thigh. They want to know what to do. I jerked away from his touch and shook my head. I told you I'm not an angel. I don't know what this place is or how I got here. I can't help you. I'm sorry. As I spoke, Luval's eyes menacing, he reached out and grasped my thigh again, his grip now firm and commanding. He spoke with cold authority. It's time you fulfilled your duty. We don't want to hear any more excuses. Show us how to get past the hangman. Show us how to get to heaven. He stood and motioned for me to do the same. Come, let's go outside. I rose with him, not sure what else to do. We approached the door and the others stepped aside to let us pass, bowing their heads slightly. No matter what I said, it seemed they were convinced I was some kind of angel. We went outside and I stopped dead in my tracks. Luval stood beside me. The congregation was lying down on the beach, hands at their sides, like rows of forgotten corpses. When they saw me emerge from the hut, they stirred to life, crawling to their knees. There they remained, hands resting on their bare thighs. Then they waited. Behind them, the hanged man dangled motionless over the open sea, 
Come. You must speak to them. Luval said, placing a hand on my shoulder. No. I whispered, feeling uneasy. No, you don't understand. I can't help these people. Luval's grip turned to iron, pushing me toward the dunes. Come. It's time you showed us the way. I stumbled forward, my bare feet burning in the sand. The sun blazed down from a cloudless sky, and I saw thousands of hopeful, desperate eyes follow me as I walked. I watched them below me, the beach alive with movement as their tongues slithered across their bald heads, relieving them of the effects of the sun's burning light. I looked past them, towards the hanged man, squinting to catch any sign of movement. Yet he remained immobile. His eyes remained closed and I had yet to see him take a breath. As far as I could tell, he was dead. Maybe there was something to that. Perhaps it was the answer to my problems. How long had it been since these people attempted to pass through the Red Cloud? How long had it been since the hanged man had last stirred? I continued to be led across the dunes, sweat pouring from my face. I felt like I was suffocating, my throat a dry strip of sandpaper. It was impossibly hot. I felt my skin cooking beneath the intense light and ran my tongue along my cracked lips. What did Luval expect me to say to these people? As the burning sand danced between my toes, I was struck with a thought. When am I going to wake up? I almost laughed but the sudden humor died in my dehydrated mouth. I looked behind me at Louisville and the modest crowd following us. They looked excited, hopeful. It made me sick. I had no plan and no idea what was happening to me. I had grown an army of followers who believed me to be some kind of savior and who expected me to deliver some sort of sermon. I was trapped in a nightmare and I couldn't see any way out. One moment I had been drowning. The next I was standing before a congregation of strangers, all of whom expected me to reveal to them the path to salvation. What could I say that would make them understand? What could I do to show them I wasn't an angel? This is good. Luval said suddenly, squeezing my shoulder. We were standing at the peak of a large dune, a platform to spread my voice to the horde waiting below. I felt my stomach shudder as I looked out on the thousands of people on their knees looking up at me and the ever-present hanged man. I shot a look over my shoulder at Luval and swallowed hard. What do you expect me to say? I gasped. Luval spread his hands. Anything you want. Tell us how you got here. Tell us how to follow you back to heaven. Tell us how to get by the hanged man. My back was slick with sweat. I wiped a coat of it off my forehead and turned back to the audience below. My heart thundered in my chest. My sour breath wafted across my tongue. What should I say? How would I get them to understand? Questions rolled across my mind to the point of hysteria. I fumbled for words to say, but they died on my tongue. 
I could feel myself growing fearful, then frustrated, and finally, rebellious. Forget it, I thought. Forget this insanity. I cleared my throat. I'm... I'm not your angel. I yelled, my voice carrying down to them. I don't know how I got here, but I can assure you it wasn't because of your prayers. I heard Louvol and the others behind me audibly gasp. I continued. I don't know where I am, or who you freaks are, but I am not your savior. I got caught in a riptide and sank into a cloudy light in the ocean. I thought it was dead. Maybe I am dead. I heard Louvol growling behind me, but I ignored him. I'd had enough. The combined effect of the sand and the heat, and Louvol's continued insistence that I was some angel sent there to deliver his people, had pushed me over the edge. Angrily, I clenched my fists by my sides. Sweat dripped from the tip of my nose. I don't know how to save you. I don't know how to get to heaven. I'm not the one you've been waiting for. I pointed across the ocean. And that thing? Your almighty hanged man? He looks dead. Yet here you are, cowering on the beach, trembling in fear. You want to make something of yourselves? You want to transcend to a better life? Well, stop being such cowards and do it. Luvolg reached out to grab me, but I shook him off pointing towards the water. Stop waiting for a miracle and do it yourselves. I'm not your angel. Suddenly, I was cast to the ground, pulled down by strong hands. A chorus of angry voices surrounded me. Onlookers kicked sand into my face and pinned my arms to the ground. Furious and frightened, I lashed out, losing myself in the waking nightmare. Then a foot plowed into my stomach and my will to fight left me, along with most of my breath. I lay there gasping, blinking against the sun. A shadow fell over my face and Louvel stared down at me with fire in his eyes. What have you done? He snarled. No one can save you, you helpless freaks. I spat, wriggling against my captors to no avail. Luval shook his head at me and then stared into the eyes of the others. They nodded to him, a silent conversation passing through the air above me. Get off of me! Let me go! Luval leaned down and placed his lips to my ear. If you won't help us, then we'll find another use for you. I stopped struggling and turned to look into his eyes. What are you talking about? Luval licked his lips. If you won't show us mercy, perhaps the hanged man will. Perhaps an offering will change his mind. Perhaps an angel is the price we must pay to cross to the other side. Let go of me. You're all insane. You don't know what you're talking about. Luval raised a hand to the others. Get the boat. It's time we float to eternity, my brothers. A cry of joy went up, 
followed by an even louder exclamation from below us on the beach. I cocked my head up in the sand and saw the mass of people standing, smiles on their faces. They pumped their fists into the air and began to chant. My blood went cold as I listened. Before I could speak, I was roughly hauled to my feet, hands slapping and gripping me. A hard shove to the middle of my back sent me sprawling, face first down the slope. I coughed and spat as millions of burning shards scraped across my cheeks as I tumbled end over end before sliding to a stop on the beach. Immediately, the masses were upon me. A hand tangled in my hair and pulled me to my feet while others grabbed me and began dragging me to the water's edge. I screamed and fought, panic rising in my throat like a burning volcano. Over my shoulder, I saw Louvel striding towards me down the dune, a sick smile on his face. I was filled with terror at how quickly they had turned on me. A thousand wriggling, moving bodies surrounded me. The more I struggled, the rougher the crowd became. I coughed and wheezed as fists pummeled my body. Nails raked across my skin, blood and slime spattered my face. Flesh pressed against me and my ears filled with the roar of the growing riot. Tripping and stumbling, I succumbed to the onslaught and fell to my knees. I felt a rope slide around my neck. Moments later, a circle of fire ignited around my throat as the crowd began dragging me towards the ocean. Blinking through blood, I trained my eyes ahead of me towards the sky, and my heart stopped in my chest. The hanged man's eyes were wide open. He was looking right at me. Dread coursed through me with the force of a raging hurricane, and I began to scream in absolute horror. The hanged man's eyes were huge and swollen, his irises two red orbs in a pool of blinding snow. Twin red funnels shot from his sockets like searchlights filling my line of sight and summoning my darkest nightmares. I tried to scream, but my cries were interrupted by a jerk on the rope. The earth beneath me thundered with the stampede of feet in a hurried rush to the water's edge. I retched and felt my eyes bulge. My oxygen-starved mind began to dim. Mercifully, the rope was removed and I was dragged to my feet. My world swam as I tried to focus on the bouncing, swirling ocean of people before me. Their long noses swayed on their faces like pendulums, and their second tongues coated their scalps excitedly. A great cry sounded to my left. Weakly, I turned my head and witnessed a small craft being pushed into the water. A flat construction of wood, with a single mass that unfolded to reveal a great sail. My arms were pulled behind my back and my hands were bound. I gripped my teeth as rope cut into my wrists and I was yanked towards the boat. I coughed and fought to stay upright as my feet splashed into the water. Louvel climbed onto the craft along with three others. He reached down and pulled me up, then tossed me aside like a sack of dead meat. He turned to the mass of people on the beach, raising his voice. Pray for us. Pray for mercy. Pray for salvation. A roar went up at our backs as we were pushed out to sea. 
Water splashed over the crudely constructed frame. I gagged as sea salt rushed up my nose. I was pulled into a sitting position and shoved against the mast. Through the wet hair covering my face, I looked out into the sky. The hanged man had raised his head from his shoulders and was watching our approach. The red light that shot from his eyes blinded me and I turned away, spots dancing across my vision. My battered, shaken body offered no comfort, and fear consumed me. It didn't have to be like this, Luval said behind me as he plunged an oar into the ocean. The others followed his example, their dripping faces watching me. You've all lost your minds, I spat. The water sloshed across the wooden planks as we continued to draw closer and closer to the hanged man. All the while he gazed upon us, his massive body hovering above the surface of the sea, dangling from its celestial chain like bait on a hook. As we approached, Louisville raised his hand to the others and they stopped rowing. The craft slowed and I chanced to glance up, feeling a dark stirring in the back of my mind. I struggled to suppress my terror as something foreign poked around inside my head. The hanged man loomed before us, suspended a dozen feet above the calm waters, bathing our vessel in a red glow. At that very moment, a surge of haunting, morbid images flashed suddenly in my mind. Louisville got down on his knees, followed by the others. His voice shook as he spoke. Please. Becoming peace. Spare us a moment and listen to what I have to say. The hanged man remained a statue of dark fear. Louisville continued, visibly shaken. In exchange for a passage into heaven, we offer you this angel who has come to us promising salvation. I whipped my head to stare at him. Louisville shot me a look and pressed on. He's offered to rid us of your presence, but we knew there would be no passage unless you deemed us worthy. So instead of following this angel in a revolution against you, we offer him up to you as a token of goodwill, as a token of respect, as a rite of passage. Please, take him as payment and let us pass through the red cloud into heaven. He bowed his head and spread his arms, waiting. You liar! I snarled. Silence! Luval hissed. The air filled with mounting tension as the seconds ticked by. The sound of the water sloshing around the boat seemed to consume me. I shut my eyes and focused on it, shaking, trembling. The red light washed over my skin. Suddenly, I heard a collective gasp and I snapped my eyes open. In the water below us, there appeared a massive, voluminous cloud of sparking red light. It extended out into the ocean like a titanic patch of fog, a swirling dance of color churning beneath the surface. Luval stood, eyes wide. He... He is allowing us passage. The others stood staring at one another, mouths open in complete shock. Immediately, the populace sank back to their knees and bowed their heads, 
sputtering their thanks and praise to the hanged man. They prostrated themselves on the boat, gushing with wonderment and promise. Suddenly, Duval grabbed me and pulled me to my feet. I hope you burn for this, I growled as he pulled me over to the mast. Quite the contrary, he said, yanking on me. Luval motioned for the others to help him, and the familiar coil of rope again encircled my throat. I coughed and struggled, but was silenced with an oar to the stomach. I vomited, the bile spilling out over the deck. I craned my head to look behind me and saw they had thrown the rope over the mast. They had decided to hang me. I stared up at the hanged man, his huge, ghastly eyes boring into my skull. His blackened skin absorbed the sunlight around him as I fought helplessly against the rope tying my hands. This is it, I thought. This is the end. Luval was suddenly behind me. He whispered softly into my ear. When I see God, I will tell him of your cowardice. A sudden rage burned within me, and my body stiffened. I turned my head, and with all the vitriol I could muster, shouted, No, you won't! I slammed the back of my head into my captor's face. Luval dropped the rope limply to the deck and doubled over, clutching his bleeding mouth, rewarding me with an ear-splitting scream. Before he could recover, I took a step back and grabbed his dangling nose with my bound hands. Screaming defiantly, I ripped it from his face in an explosion of crimson, tearing the tube of flesh from his head like strings of melted cheese. Luval sank to his knees, howling as blood poured from the hole in his face. The others on the boat froze, surprised and revolted by what I had just done. The rope dropped limply to the deck. I charged the side of the boat and leapt overboard momentarily catching a glimpse of the hanging man dropping suddenly from the sky, as if someone had released an anchor. He hit the surface with a deafening splash and disappeared beneath the waves. The murky depths obscured my vision as I made contact and immediately began to sink. I wriggled like a dolphin, trying to free my hands, but it was hopeless. I trained my burning eyes on the red cloud below me, Frantically, I wriggled towards it, my lungs hammering inside my chest. Suddenly, the water was alight with shades of red. I whipped my head to my left, bubbles exploding from my mouth, and my eyes widened in terror. The hanged man was rocketing in my direction, hands outstretched, followed closely by the heavy snake-like coil of chain. His eyes filled the depths with their haunting crimson hue, illuminating his nightmarish silver-like fingers. Seized with crippling fear, I propelled myself forward, diving deeper towards the red cloud. A muffled, haunting roar of fury erupted behind me, testing my resolve. Quivering, I resisted the urges of my splintering sanity and reached for the depths towards my salvation. I had almost reached the cloud. I kicked and screamed with all the might I could muster, leaving a trail of howling bubbles in my wake. Suddenly, I was jerked backwards and I felt pain shooting through my leg. I turned around and saw the hanged man grasping my ankle, pulling his body up to meet me. 
I shook with the darkest, deadliest torment as he stared into my face. My world became a blur, and any resistance drained from my body as his eyes consumed my soul. My mouth dropped open in a silent scream as red filled my head, and every one of my fears again rose to the surface. Madness threatened to rip my mind in two. As darkness approached, my mind began to fade. Suddenly, through the agony, I heard another sound. A splashing, a muted rush of churning water. The hanged man turned to look towards the surface. I followed his gaze. Louvol and his people were in the water and frantically swimming towards the red cloud. The hanged man roared and looked back at me, then to the others. With a snarl, he released me. My mind shimmered and then refocused, the red leaving my fractured brain in a rush of heat. Still bound, I watched as the hanged man raced to stop the others from entering the red cloud. I watched as he tore them apart, filling the water with crimson viscera. The cloud engulfed me as I descended into the depths. A moment later, I lost consciousness, and everything turned black. I don't really remember what happened after I reached the cloud. I don't recall the in-between. There was just nothing. The next thing I remember was getting CPR on the beach. From the father who had been building a sandcastle with his son. The good dad. I sputtered back to life, screaming and vomiting up a great deal of salt water. I laid weeping on the beach as an ambulance was called. I was rushed to the hospital and cared for, questioned, and given some much-needed rest. I've never recovered fully from my experience. I'm still not entirely sure what happened, where I went, or how I got there. For a long while, I didn't know if what I went through was even real, or if those people, those creatures, were real. Or if I experienced some fearful hallucination between the reality of the living and the dead. As time passed, I tried to discard the horrors I went through as something my mind conjured to stay alive. I wanted to believe that the nightmare world I visited was nothing more than some horrific dream I used to stave off death. But I can't. No matter how much I'd like to deny the existence of that terrible place beneath the riptide, I just can't. After I was rushed to the hospital, the father who resuscitated me came for a visit. That day, in a moment, he told me something that has haunted me ever since, and which erased all of my doubts. Ah, son, you know, you're real lucky. That's the damnedest thing, though. When I found you, your hands were tied. As this tale closes, we offer you some solace. At least the burning feeling of salt water filling your lungs isn't the worst that is to come. Hmm, that doesn't seem comforting at all, does it? Don't complain. That would be cutting your nose off, in spite of your face. 
you'll never believe what I just found out. Apparently, the whole royal family is really a bunch of shape-shifting lizard people. Oh, really, Archibald? I mean, come now. Wait, did you say the entire royal family? Even uh, the Queen Mum? But, my goodness, this, this, this is impossible. Yeah, well, that ain't the worst thing. Apparently, they like to get together with aliens and play ping pong on comets. And something about pizza made out of children and... Uh, go on. Tell me more. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know what a fan I am of pizza and all that. Hey folks, the other half here. Just wanted to let you know that our Kickstarter campaign is in full swing. So we'll be swinging the bat to try and make those goals so we can bring you our twisted imaginations in gloriously horrifying color. So go to chillingtalesfordarknights.com forward slash animation to become part of the campaign. You can help us bring chilling tales for dark nights to the world so help the globe turn on the lights and turn off the dark now Allow us to lift the veil for you with these exciting announcements from the world of the Simply Scary Podcast. First, it is extremely important that if you cannot or will not support us monetarily, we insist that you allow the ads to play through in our videos and occasionally click on them to assert your viewership. The power is with you, as we say. And it is a way for you to lend your support without opening your wallet. Secondly, access our Kickstarter campaign to fund our most ambitious project yet. Creating an animated series around our audio experiences. Our frightening productions and disturbing animation of David Romero will combine to create an anthology series like you have never seen before. Move your fingers to that subscribe button below to receive updates on our most recent posts and to be apprised of the amazing rewards we have in store for you if you help support us. Become a patron today and you will have access to extended broadcasts of this show featuring stories not included in the public YouTube release. Go to simplyscarypodcast.com and click on Patrons at the top of the home page to take the tour and to get access to all our content and unrelated material that you will find literally nowhere else. Finally, we bring to you one of my favorite parts of the show, where we choose your YouTube comment and read it on the air and present you with a ghoulish gift for your feedback. This episode's winning comment comes from Tyler Staley. And Tyler has a question. Call me an excited fan, but I'm just wondering, is Walking in the Dark still going to be released? 
Big Otis Gyre fan, so I'm looking forward to it. If something's come up, please take the time you need. I just want to know if everything's okay. Regardless, here's to the master storyteller. First of all, thank you, Tyler, for your comment and your concern. The master storyteller, as you say, Otis Gyre, is doing just fine. <laughs> so fine, although uh, he has yet to take me up on my offer of coming and living in my freezer of frozen zombie parts. Uh, but anyway, the show we premiered, Walking in the Dark, is definitely still on the shelf for continuation. But we have put it on hiatus for the time being in an effort to commission series that are written exclusively for that show. And to be honest, we need more financial support to compensate a writing staff for that purpose. So know that the more of you that sign up as patrons and get behind our efforts like Kickstarter, and more importantly, the more you share what we do, the closer we come to fulfilling our goal of more creative content like Walking in the Dark. So become a patron, subscribe, and share us with everyone you know, so we can enjoy new programming and can have our weekly dose of Otis. Tyler, we will need you to send us a screenshot of your YouTube account page with your name pictured to contact at simplyscarypodcast.com in order to claim your prize. This is G.M. Danielson, thanking you for joining us. Remember, listeners, no matter how well you think you know what you perceive, there could be an infinite number of universes at the mercy of that one simple choice. And the mere question of sausage or pepperoni could have consequences far beyond your imagination. Until we meet again, grab your fragile sense of self and hold on tight. For you are just experiencing the Simply Scary Podcast. Dolphins use puffer fish to get high. Um, what is hashtag Vault 7? Apparently, Miley Cyrus is the woman cloaked in purple and scarlet. Let's see here. Oh, Oscar Mayer is spelled M A Y E R. Archibald Carlisle? Eh, call me up. Oh, God. Wow, I can't believe it's you. I'm so excited. This is my first day as an intern for the Simply Scary Podcast, and I get to meet Archibald Carlisle in the flesh. Um, don't I know you? Hi, I'm Neil. I'm super excited. Uh, yeah, you said that already, kid. Oh my god. But, but you can't be you. I, I stuffed you in GM's laundry basket. Gee, Mr. Carlisle, I don't know about that. All I do know is that I, I was ready to come in for my first day on the job, and suddenly, that 
everything was just a little different. It was like I was suddenly in a different universe where Donald Trump was now president and... Oh my God. And the next thing I knew, I had this note that I was supposed to give to you. Oh, uh, thanks. Uh, let me get my glasses. Let's see. <clears throat> now, let me see. Um, Archie, we know what you have done, and we're not pleased. Uh, Neil the intern is an important part of our plan, and we will not let you stop us. Uh, your choice to remove Neil from your timeline has set into motion an unstoppable chain of circumstances. The door is open now, and we will be coming. Rest assured, we are watching you. By the way, those are some very nice glasses you have on. They make you look sophisticated. Oh my god! Well... I really should get these aborted cow fetuses on over to Mr. Half. See you around, Mr. Carlisle. My baloney has a Oh my god! I got the script for the original film. There. Look. You see, Archie? I told you. Vader says, No. I am your father. Uh, yeah. Hey, since I got the snacks, you want to go watch Shazam starring Sinbad? <laughs> what? Well, more for me. Hmm. See you later, folks. <laughs> this is executive producer Jesse Cornett. If you like what you hear, be sure to check out more from these authors at simplyscarypodcast.com. There you can find all information regarding the show and the stories appearing here in our podcast. The Simply Scary Podcast is a production of Chilling Entertainment. The showcase is written by Jesse Cornett and Dustin Kosky and produced by Jesse Cornett. The host of the Simply Scary Podcast is GM Danielson. Original music during the show by Jesse Cornett. This broadcast was directed and created by Craig Groshek. Be sure to look for the Simply Scary Podcast on iTunes. And if you like the show, leave us a five-star review. Comments or questions? Email us at contact at simplyscarypodcast.com and check our website for more information. While you're there, consider clicking on the patrons link at the top of the page to help support our show. Copyright Chilling Entertainment, LLC, 2017. Thanks for listening. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. 
If you own a home, you know how much work it can take. Whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now, all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.